Black and white and red all over. Ian Murta. He can talk football all day. He can talk football all day. It is Ian Murta. Good evening on this cold, freezing night. Well, our listeners, you stretch from north of the Tyne to south of the Tees. And I suspect there's a there's a roller coaster of moods right now among the Northeast football fraternity. Newcastle fans, well, I'm sure you're feeling great pride in that Bucks of the War performance in Paris, which looked so, so close to getting the three points that Newcastle wanted so much. And then there's the agony, there's the, the heartache, the anger of that late, late penalty which uh, gifted Paris Saint-Germain a point. And what do you think about uh, Mbappe calling Newcastle nothing team? Well, that's really wound them up, hasn't it? Then you got Middlesbrough fans. Well, that was a emphatic 4-0 win against a pretty hopeless Preston side, but it followed a a strange game at, at Bristol City where they lost 3-2, looked as if they were going to win the game when they pulled back to 2-2. But they were points that promotion sides don't want to give away. So I would think going to lead a side that have won the last six home games, they'll be a little concerned, but cautiously optimistic that the season is still upwardly mobile. Sunderland, meanwhile... Well, I think Sunderland fans, they saw the worst performance of the season, possibly the worst performance of the Tony Mowbray managership on Wednesday night, losing 2-1 to a Huddersfield side who had only won one of the previous 10 games under Darren Moore. Sunderland looked lethargic, lacked ideas, and of course, there was that horrible, horrible statistic that going into December, they haven't had a goal from a striker. <laughs> It's uh, it's been a bit of an eternal problem for them, hasn't it? Um, mm, it wasn't a problem a month ago when Jack Clark was scoring goals and defenders were chipping in, and but all of a sudden, you know, the four strikers that Tony Mowbray tries are all much of a muchness. And I suspect if you took a fans' poll, Dave, twenty five percent would go for one, twenty five percent for the other, and the other fifty percent for the other two. You know, so they need one of them to stick their hand up and and start hitting the back of the net they do indeed but it's time for your first guest yes listen i've been covering northeast football for 38 years i've seen some great great players now my next guest i don't think you could class him as a great player but what you would class him as was a great prospect who would have become a great player had injuries not affected him he only played just under 40 games for sunderland and it's more than 30 years ago since he last pulled on the red and white shirt. But he's still very, very fondly remembered by Macrams. His name is Kieran Brady, and I'm delighted to have him on the show tonight. How are you, Kieran? Good evening, Ian. Now, I've, I've promised everyone we're not going to talk Celtic tonight, so we'll just talk about the Northeast Big Three because that's what black and white and red all over is all about. Absolutely. Anyway, listen. Let's go back. I remember your, that great game you played against West Ham for very, very uh, special reasons. I'd just come back from honeymoon and it was my first game for the Evening Chronicle. And it was superb. 4-3 win for Sunderland. You, I think you created two goals, scored one. And afterwards, I remember talking to Liam Brady, who, was, who finished his career at West Ham, 
and asking what he thought of his namesake, and he, he he was pretty gushing in his praise of you. Yeah, I mean, for all my career was somewhat brief in comparison to others. I managed to achieve certain things and be the recipient of some lovely sentiments from people that I would have the greatest respect and admiration for. And, you know, there wouldn't be many more so than, than Liam. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, he was coming to the end of his career, but he had performed exceptionally well, both at club level in England and in Italy, and of course, internationally for Ireland. So, Yes, it was a brief career. I had to retire at the age of 21, but there's a lot of happy memories contained within that period of my life. Yes, I mean, I'm thinking of some notable games. You you broke back into Sunderland's side in in March 1990, didn't you? And uh, you... you Re, re, rekindled the, the playoff drive and yet by the time they reached the playoffs you, you didn't play in the games against Newcastle or the, the final against Swindon did you? No I was actually on the bench for mm. both of the games against Newcastle but was the 14th man as it was once termed by the time we got yeah. to Wembley so in many, many respects it was bittersweet because I would have loved to have played in a time weird derby and naturally, like most footballers, an appearance at Wembley would provide a very, very fond memory. But it wasn't to be. And from memory, I think Dennis felt that having Thomas Hauser to call on might have benefits if we're going to have to go a more direct route. And obviously on the day at Wembley, Swindon were very worthy winners, although we were very fortuitous in terms of what happened subsequently. But again, I would just reiterate that there was a lot of happy memories, especially for someone who, in the majority of the games that I played for Sunderland, I was still eligible to play for the youth team. So I was under no illusions, even at the time, that playing every week for the first team would be a little bit aspirational, you know. And there was a lot of players with a lot more experience than me, even if they might not have had certain attributes that I had. So... There wasn't any difficulties with regards to Dennis Smith going with experience on the number of occasions that he did. Now, you, you mentioned Dennis Smith. You mentioned bittersweet. I'd call it love-hate. You were his trump card, but you were also his scapegoat. When, when he needed a win, he'd bring, take you off the bench or recall you. If there'd been a defeat, you'd probably be the first one to be left out of the side. Uh, yeah, I mean... Okay, you can term it love, hate, bittersweet, whatever you like. But, you know, I've since spoken with Dennis and we reminisced about times going by. And I think there was an all acknowledgement from both parties that at times I could have worked harder, perhaps in greater focus. And mm-hmm. from his perspective, he felt that he was still trying to come to terms with how to coach a talent and how to get the best from me on a more consistent basis. So these are all the perils and pitfalls that come with not only myself in the very early stages of being a developing footballer, but I suppose from Dennis's perspective, likewise, in terms of being very much in the embryonic stages of being a manager. Yes. Mind you, you you were a little bit of a daft lad. I remember it must have been about March, April time and... You arrived in Roker Park in your XR2, which uh, a lot of players drove in those days. 
playing Last Christmas by Wham. What what were you playing that <laughs> for in March and April time, Kieran? Yeah, well, I know that this particular time is the season when such melodies should be played, but I wasn't really one for conforming with certain social norms. I'm still not. <laughs> um, you know, if, if, if I find a song appealing or alluring, then I'll play it irrespective of what time of year it is. Mm. Yeah, well, I, I can remember because I remember Dennis, I, oh, I thought was a great manager. And I've, I've met him a couple of times. I think I saw him at uh, the Riverside when Stoke were there this season and he's looking well. But he used to accuse me of, uh, he said, how much is Kieran paying you? Because I'd always, I'd always sort of, uh, I guess, campaigned for you to be in the side because, as I say, I, w- I was new at the job following Sunderland and you, you played some tremendous games that season. You also played some great games the following season in, in, the, in the Premier League. I think uh, you came off the bench at Stamford Bridge. Did you score Chelsea or did you lay on a goal, a goal for Marco Gabbiadini? Uh, yeah, I scored and, and assisted right, one yeah. for... That's... Marco and I think you know again because I think from memory I was 18 years old at, at that time and yeah. to play in the English top flight and to score and you know the, the goal that I scored is something that was quite special for me as well so again there's a lot of very happy memories and although the relationship with Dennis was quite often fractured I suppose mm. the one thing that I would always be appreciative of is that he must have thought something of me to allow me to feature as often Mm. as I did because, you know, in this day and age, it's quite rare for players who are 18 and 19 to feature in the first team Mm. in such a prominent manner. So to that end, there would always be an element of gratitude, even if at times, you know, as, as you just mentioned, I think he grew to resent me in a certain sense because... He was becoming very wearied by people all around him, whether it was supporters, media, or indeed members of the Sunderland board mm-hmm. who were continuously haranguing him as to why I wasn't playing or wasn't playing more often. And I think because he felt he had the knowledge of witnessing me every single day in training, he was you much were, you more... You were the best trader. You know, because yeah. my, my, my record in training was up there with anyone, certainly in terms of, of, of being in squad training. Yeah. My application, perhaps at times, you know, could have been questioned. And there's no doubt that I had a lot to learn as a footballer, both on and off the field, and I had a lot to learn as a human being. But I think you always have to make some allowance for when people are teenagers that they might make mistakes and they might not conform in the way that you would always hope for. Mm, yeah, I get now. A lot of our younger young listeners, they won't know what happened. You had a cough problem, a, a circulation problem. It got misdiagnosed. By the age of 1920, you were spending more time injured than on the pitch. You went on loan to Doncaster, played a few games, but then your career was over 21. Can you just describe your emotions? You, you certainly don't sound a bitter person, or is that just over the years you've managed to quell that bitterness? Well, I think the passing of time certainly contributes in a positive way. But I think more than that, over time, there's a greater appreciation, particularly because I still live in Sunderland, that yeah. I am... Surrounded by a lot of people who would give their right arm to put on that strip on one occasion, 
And mm. I was very fortunate to do it on a number of occasions. And to that end, I think you have to be grateful because, you know, when I was growing up and I was in my early teenage years, my aspirations exclusively revolved around becoming a professional footballer. And yeah. I was able to realise that. And although it wasn't as prolonged as I would have hoped for, and although I didn't fulfil the potential that many people have mentioned, I'm still eternally grateful for the fact that that particular dream was realised and it's something to look back on with great fondness. It's something I'm reminded of on a regular basis by the supporters I speak with. And Mm. it's not every player that goes through even a 15 or 20 year career who would have the same types of memories and be the beneficiary of such warm compliments as I have. So, you know, Mm. there's a lot to be grateful for. Um, and, and, you know, that's just my frame of mind. Yeah, I think your attitude does you great credit, Kieran. And, of course, you are now involved in football again. And a lot of fans, they, they probably see you on match of the day because uh, you work for the Premier League and uh, you invariably are standing in between the dugouts at St James's Park, aren't you? Yeah, I mean, the job that I do for the Premier League is not something that was in position during my time and that is a reflection of just how popular and how global the Premier League has become and it's probably worth pointing out given the makeup of your listeners and their respective football allegiances that it is the Premier League I work for because some Sunderland fans have accused me of crossing (laughs) the Great Divide and beginning to work for the the so-called enemy so it's the Premier League I work for and essentially liaise with the dugouts around me and at times with the fourth official to make sure that the match commentator has a lot of the relevant information that he or she Mm. would be unable to access given where they are in the stadium. Do you get on well with any how, Kieran? Well, we don't really communicate to any great extent that would allow me to say whether I like him or he likes me or whether we got on, but it's simply very courteous and polite and he obviously has to engage in media commitments before and after the game and at times I might be involved in guiding him towards one particular area where he's going to conduct an interview so to that end he's always came across as very cordial I think his demeanour his demeanour at the side of the pitch the lack of angst or anger is something that you know he deserves a lot of credit for you talked about that this this week, uh, because you know, could you imagine what um, Arteta or Klopp would have been like had uh, one of their sides been uh, conceded a penalty like the one Newcastle did in the ninety seventh minute in Paris? Well, ironically enough, Ian, we only have to go back four weeks to witness Mikel Indeed. Arteta's outburst in the in the That's aftermath right. of the. Def- um, You know, so I'm sure Eddie Howe internally was perhaps a lot more frustrated than what he might have allowed to go into the public domain. But, you know, he's always been one from my dealings or from my vantage point who keeps his emotions very much in check. And he does allow perhaps his assistants or his coaches to engage at times with the fourth official or even the other dugout. 
um, you know, when things become a little bit heated. Yeah. But he himself, I think, probably feels that he's of much more benefit to the players if he's mm-hmm. much more calm and controlled and composed. And, and that's the way he seems to manage. And if that's the way he's doing it, then it seems to be working. Yeah, I wouldn't call Eddie and his number two, Jason Tindall, good cop, bad cop, but there's certainly very, very different personalities. Uh, Jason is a lot more, how should we put it, combustible, isn't he? Well, he's certainly a lot more animated. And, you know, I, and, and to be fair to him, it, you know, it's not unique in any sense because what I have witnessed over the years is that at times it does seem as if there's someone within the coaching staff who's designated to engage with the fourth official or at times engage with others. And, of course, for the most part, whatever they say tends to be futile because it's not really the the position of the fourth official to try and directly influence matters in the field of play. But it's interesting to witness, you know, particularly in a time when we're supposed to be respecting match officials much more. Um, Yes. The, the fourth official does seem to bear the brunt of a lot of the the angst and the <laughs> you know the frustration that comes with being a being a yes, manager, being an assistant that. manager, yes. a coach, yes. etc. Yes, let let let's uh, look forward to this weekend. Uh, will I be seeing you at St James's Park tomorrow night? Ah, uh, you you will. Yes, I'm looking forward to it. Saturday night encounter against Manchester United. So. Now, um, yeah, you it's, know, an, it's an interesting game, isn't it? Because, Kieran, you know, two two years ago, I remember we asked Eddie, was, did Newcastle have an inferiority complex against the bigger clubs? La- last season, or this time last year, we were asking, do you consider yourself the equals of these clubs? And now, I mean, ev- you've got an, every right to ask, do you believe you're better than Manchester United? OK, they, they won the... Uh, the Carabao Cup final in February, but Newcastle have beaten them in pretty resounding fashion since then, haven't they? At St James's Park last season, when there was the famous uh, pre-match rant by Eddie and a very uncharacteristic, uh, expletive-laden uh, pre-match talk, which was shown on the Amazon documentary, and then of course a much-changed Newcastle side won very, very convincingly at Old Trafford in the League Cup this uh, just a couple of six weeks ago, which was a very inept Manchester United performance. But uh, how do you see this one going? Because again, you know, Manchester United, they were strange at Galatasaray. They they were a mixture of very, very good and very, very bad, weren't they? Well, I think that in many ways sums up how Manchester United have been now for some time. You know, and I think it's just Did over you? a decade since Alex Ferguson left and for the most part, I don't think they've ever looked the same club since. And mm-hmm. I say the same club rather than simply say the same team because, you know, he was unique in many respects that he was able to have so much control, so much of a stranglehold over the whole ethos of the club and that was manifest then and how the team performed. But Correct. ever since Correct. he left, despite the fact that they've had numerous managers who are very reputable and experienced, the success they've had seems to be very fleeting. And, you know, for the most part, they're making headlines at times for all the wrong reasons. So, yes, they're very capable on their day, but I'm not a keen fan on the notion of a player or a team being good on their day because all it's doing is indicating, if you read between the lines, that there's a significant degree of inconsistency there. So, 
Well, it's difficult to know, you know, how Manchester United will come and perform tomorrow. But Newcastle certainly shouldn't have, you know, any fears about it because... I, I agree. You, you know, you, you know that if this season they've beaten Paris Saint-Germain, Chelsea, Arsenal, Manchester United, Manchester City, even if it was in the League Cup and everything that that entails. So they should go into the game brimming with confidence that they can secure three points. In a strange sort of way, the game, I think it's as much about Manchester United's weaknesses tomorrow night as as Newcastle's strengths. And, you know, I'm going for a home win because Newcastle do win at home at the moment and uh, whoever they're playing. And you've got to say that Manchester United, yes, they, they, they are capable of great heights, but they're also, you know, the, from the goalkeeper to a bit of a dodgy defence and the inconsistencies of their midfielders. You know, if they're having off nights, it could be, it could be a very comfortable Newcastle win, in fact. Well, whether whether it's comfortable or not, I mean, remains to be seen. But, you know, I, I definitely think that, you know, a home win would be unsurprising, given what I've just outlined, given the quality of the teams that have already been dispatched this season. Yes. Yes, you have to prepare for Manchester United's best version. They obviously do have a lot of pace up front. They have a lot of experience in terms of Fernandes and Eriksen and McTominay. But nevertheless, as a collective, something is not clicking in any consistent manner. And Mm. as a result of that, Newcastle should be getting into the game full of confidence. They are at home. Their record generally there is exceptionally impressive. I think they'll try and take the initiative, start on the front foot, obviously get the backing of the support. And, you know, if, if they can do that, then, you know, you know, as you says, a home win, you know, would, would seem, um, you know, very likely. Yeah, let, let's let's take a 100-mile trip down the A1 to Elland Road, which what I consider the championship game of the day tomorrow. Leeds United, who are rapidly turning Elland Road back into a fortress against a Middlesbrough side who... Yes, they've improved since their early season problems, but uh, there is a little bit of inconsistency and they seem to be conceding goals on their travels. Yes, they'll be on a high after the 4-0 win, but it's a tough game for Middlesbrough, isn't it? It is, yeah. And, you know, what you've just said there, Leeds started the season quite indifferently. And, of course, that could be said also of Middlesbrough, but you do think that Daniel Fark and Leeds are now beginning to motor and... If there's any threat to Leicester at the top of the league, it looks like it might come from both Leeds and Southampton, mm. who you know are also beginning to show you know a bit a bit more form than they did earlier in the season. So it will be difficult for Middlesbrough tomorrow, but I think Michael Carrick will be buoyed by recent form, albeit there was the reversal last week in Bristol. So. It should be a good game, and I think I would agree with your sentiments that it probably is the championship game of the day. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and uh, uh, a seventh win for Leeds, or will Middlesbrough manage to get a point? I am going to go for an away win. Really? That I'd be delighted, but that would be a turn up, uh, a real turn up, because... I would say, you know, Leeds are flying and uh, they conceded a very early goal midweek against Swansea, but then roared back and won 3 1 and they're getting goals throughout the team. But hey, let's hope you're right. Now, Sunderland, your former club, Kieran, 
Millwall is not exactly the place you want to go after successive defeats, is it? It's not. And of course, you mentioned leave the best to last. So, I mean, <laughs> I suppose Sunderland could possibly take some heart from the fact that Millwall's home record over recent weeks and months has been very, very disappointing from their perspective. Yeah. So there would be a lot of indications that it's a good time to go to South London. That said, you wouldn't find a shortage of Sunderland supporters who would be able to point to history that when Sunderland play against a club who's gone through a particularly problematic period, that Sunderland is the club that you want to come up against. Now, we only have to go back 48 hours to Huddersfield coming yes. to the Stadium of Light to give some testament to that. But I think if Sunderland have any promotion ambitions, then, you know, they have to go to places like Millwall and secure three points, particularly in light of the adversity they've experienced in the last week. So I think that if they go and they manage to capitalise on the endless possession they have, the territorial advantage that generally is feature of their yes. play, then you would like to think that people can convert some of the half chances and openings that are created. Yeah, I mean, I want what the, our listeners must know, it's quite astounding fact. Sunderland have become the first team to sell out the entire away section at Millwall. Now, you know, bearing in mind you're talking a 500-mile-plus trip, their form isn't good. I mean, that shows great credit to the Markham faithful, doesn't it? Yeah, and, you know, for all we can talk about the team and the club at times having unwanted records attached to their name over the course of the last decade or so, mm. there's nothing surprises me about the Sunderland support. There's nothing surprises me about the travelling support and the willingness to get up in the dark early hours of the morning and travel across the country or to the south of the country. It's just something that's a prominent, consistent feature with them. And irrespective of recent form, there's no doubt that when the players take to the field at a couple of minutes to three, the vocal backing that will come down from the away section would tend to indicate that this is a team that's gone through a rich vein of form because that's Indeed. the way that they show their loyalty. It's the way it's always been since I've been here. And I've got no reason to think that it's going to be any different anytime soon. Well, it's been fantastic talking to you, Kieran, and uh, I'll be putting on about six layers tomorrow night. So I expect you you look like an Eskimo as well when I see you, will you? Yeah, absolutely. Because some of the work that I'll be doing pre-match is outside with a whole host of international broadcasters, then there's little doubt that I'll be, um, you know, I'll be well wrapped up. You know, when Manchester United come to any away team, one of the things that I've learned is that irrespective of their form and what they're going through, they've still got such global appeal that yes. international broadcasters come in significant numbers. So, it will be a busy game for me, but then obviously once the action starts, hopefully it will be enjoyable. Well, lovely seeing you and lo lovely talking to you and I look forward to seeing you tomorrow night, Kieran. Thank you very much. Thank you, Ian. Thank you. All the best. He speaks well, doesn't he, Dave? He does. He speaks very well. Very well. And, uh, and uh, you know, we've, we've, got, we've got three tough games 
It's interesting. In fact, um, tipping Middlesbrough to win at Elland Road because that shocked me, stunned me. Mm. <laughs> yeah, I mean, even though I think you know they are on an upward trajectory, I can't see them winning tomorrow. In fact, I'm going for three home wins tomorrow. I think Newcastle will beat Manchester United, but I'm afraid uh, I fear Sunderland and Middlesbrough will return from their respective ports of call pointless. Uh, look, I, I can't argue too strongly against that. I think Manchester United will, uh, sorry, Newcastle United will not uh, face the after the Lord Mayor's show we've seen earlier in the season from their Champions League exploits. I think they'll be focused. I think they'll have a point to prove because of what happened in Paris. I think they will beat Manchester United. The Borough, I'm letting my heart rule my head and I'm going to say you Borough, always do. You Borough always will do. come back with a point. Um, Sunderland at Millwall, yeah, it's a really tricky one. Um, I fear for Sunderland down there. It could be three. It could be three successive defeats. Or, mm. as, as I tipped on the morning show on the breakfast show, uh, perhaps they'll be able to hold strong, and they may come back with a point, and there might not be any goals scored in the game. Mm. Well, uh, my second guest who'll be on after the break is Max Taylor, who has covered Newcastle United matches for Radio Tyneside. That's Hospital Radio. For those who don't know, for. 41 years and so we're going to have a, a whole bank of memories from Max I'm very interested to ask him to come I want to compare then and now which was which was greater were the 80s better was the pre-premier league era better or is it better now so I'm very much looking forward to chatting to Max we'll do that next right across the northeast on the cat the red and the tune black and white and red all over Three decades of reporting northeast football. Ian Murtagh. The captain and the red. Now, Dave, you and I have a certain vintage, and we like to think we've been around like, the block. Once I like that or word, twice. vintage. Well, that's a good way of describing it, isn't it? Anyway, you know, compared to my new guest, you and I are wet behind the ears, fresh-faced youngsters. I give you Max Taylor. The long-serving, and I mean long-serving, commentator on Newcastle United games for Hospital Radio on Tyneside, Radio Tyneside. Good evening, Max. Yes, good evening, gentlemen. Yes, I'm, uh, I, sound, I sound like an old man there. You're, 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 you're talking about no, how long I've I'll been... No, I'll tell you what, you've got, you've, you've got less grey hair than most people in the, pre in the press room at Newcastle <laughs> from what I've seen. Got less so. grey hair than me, that's for sure. <laughs> well, I'm actually Listen, I'm, I'm actually seven, I'm 73 now, which I, I, wow. I find incredible. When I when I wow. uh, when I you know look at some people who are in their sixties, they look like old men. But as you as you and I see each other quite regularly, I'm, I still look uh, you know quite uh, quite fit and active. I hope you weren't uh, referring to me there, Taylor. <laughs> <laughs> but but li listen, I mean, 1981. You told me it was when you started. Is that right on Radio Tyneside? Yes, there was um, there was a little advert in the in the Evening Chronicle uh, that, that said soccer commentators required for hospital radio. I'd, uh, my wife and I had been living in in South Wales for a couple of years, and when I came back here, was this little advert, and I thought, here we go, this is my destiny, and I applied for the the, the job, and uh, basically. Uh, there was about 150 other people applied as well, so uh, I was I was in a long queue, and then they, they whittled us down to 10, and then I had to do a little 10-minute uh, uh, match report from the uh, Newcastle United Press North End Reserve game, and right. uh, and from there and from there it's been uh, you know 
downhill ever since, basically. Well, you've obviously been doing something right, but tell me about, about hospital radio. I mean, of course, it's prov- it provides a, a fantastic service uh, service for those people who who are infirmed. But these days, of course, you've got the likes of Radio Newcastle still do matches. Can you tell me, in your words, why you believe Radio Tyneside's Newcastle commentary still provides a important and a unique service? Well, if you go right back to 1951 is when uh, Newcastle United uh, allowed Radio... Well, it wasn't called Radio Tyneside in those days. It was just hospital broadcasting. And the uh, broadcast from the the old... um, Well, it's now the Milburn stand, but that old wooden stand when you used to have to climb up a a wooden ladder to go into the press box on the top of that... um, Bit at the top there. What a what a death trap that was because everything was wood, wasn't it? And if there'd been just a fire, be- like, just before well, my time, just before my time, Max. Well, you know, if you think what happened at Bradford, I mean, it would have been yes. enough. Well, it would have been. Cause, anyway, I, I applied for the uh, the job. I got the job, and um, and and it was 1981. Uh, I had to go in the studio for a few weeks, but uh, in those days, it was people like Arthur Cox was the manager and things like that. But it's interesting, the question, if I come back to the question you asked me, uh, now that uh, the BBC and ITV are not so centred on the regional broadcasting, the uh, yes. Radio Tyneside, which is on 24 hours a day, it's got lots of different programmes, every sort of music that you want to listen to, um, you know, we're providing a service which they don't anymore, which I think is a great strength for us. And, of course, you can get us on DEB now, you can get us on... Uh, FM, you can get us on medium wave. It just goes on and on and on. And uh, you know, if you were in Australia, you could you could say play radio Tyneside, and you'd be able to hear us. Wow, that's fantastic! Now, you mentioned 1981. Now, the 1980-81 season was one of arguably the worst in Newcastle's history. I think the average crowds were 16,000 that year, and the following year only 17,000. There were one or two dip below 10,000. I think uh, from what I've been looking up in the record books, Newcastle crashed out of the FA Cup 4-0 at Exeter in a replay. Top scorer for the side was Bobby Shinter with seven. And I think in the whole season, that first season under Arthur Cox, they only scored 30 goals. Why did you continue yeah, well, doing the job? <laughs> That's a good question. Well, it was a it was a job that I uh, obviously I had another job, but this was a me living out my fantasy. You know, going down yeah. to the Benwell training ground, interviewing all these sort of players. You know, you mentioned people like Bobby Shinton and things like that was there at the time. You know, which was, mm-hmm. I mean, he wouldn't even get, he wouldn't even be allowed in the ground now, would he? When you think of some of the superstars we have. But that was the first season that, uh, that, that there was three points for a win. I don't know whether it was sort of rare or that, the 81-82 season. And that, right. that made a little bit of a difference. And, and you mentioned the fact that the season after we got knocked out by Exeter City or whatever it was, that's the 81-82 season. We, we lost to Grimsby Town by two goals to one at home in the FA Cup as well. I mean, it, it was just awful. Everything about the club, the, the players, the stadium, the, the whole motivation, the support, Porters, everything was wrong and it needed some messiah to come along and that messiah came along the next season Kevin it stunned exactly it stunned the football world didn't it and and that was uh, that was the, the the catalyst which really we're still enjoying now but just getting back to this hospital radio thing I I wrote to and here's a, a name from the past a man called Brian Butler who was the BBC soccer commentator at the time uh, BBC to, two was yeah 
Yeah, I, I told him that I'd, I'd got this job with Radio Tyneside doing the soccer commentaries from St. James's Park. And he wrote me a lovely letter back, which I still have. And um, he, uh, he told me what I should be doing, you know, what I shouldn't be doing and this, that and the other. And he said things like, you know, you, you've got to say that the ball's deep inside the United half on the right-hand side. You know, the, it's, uh, you know, it try and paint a picture for people who were, were basically blind, you know, who, who didn't understand what you were talking about. And, yes. and it's quite funny for a couple of years later, I went, because we used to broadcast to the blind in St. James's Park. I went round and I said, hello, lads, I'm, I'm Max Taylor. The, the, oh, hello, son, I recognise your voice and this, that and the other. And this man, one man, he said, uh, hey, I think you're funny. And he says, you, you do make me laugh, you know, daddy da sort of thing. And he said, but can I just say one thing to you? He said, yeah. you talk about the grass being green and the sky being blue. He says, that means bugger all to me. <laughs> Which <laughs> made me laugh. But anyway, it was. Now listen, but anyway, it's been a, yeah, go on. I was going to say, you know, it's fascinating, but we've got Newcastle, Sunderland and, and Middlesbrough fans listening to this and, and fans of non-league clubs uh, in the area as well. So, And I think you're the perfect person to answer this. I, I, I did my first match. I was in my early 20s, 1985, but uh, you've been around much longer. I'd like you to compare the two eras. I mean, let's look at the pros and cons. In the 80s, well, you had possibly more access. You had three o'clock kickoffs. There was, um, yeah. there, and and of course, you know, there were overpaid millionaires. There was, there was people that were in touch with the fans, weren't they? Nowadays, the facilities are undoubtedly better, but you've got clubs are owned by states. Some states with dubious human rights records. You've got VAR, which I believe is ruining the game and should be scrapped. But that's another story. So, where do you sit? What's better? the pre-Premier League era, and specifically the 80s, when, let's face it, the crowds weren't very good and hooliganism was rife, or now, when you've got other factors that are, inverted commas, ruining football? Well, as far as I was concerned, it was better then because I was allowed access, as you rightly say, to go down to Benwell yeah. training ground and yeah. interview the Kevin Keegans of this world and, and uh, Dave McCreary's, Ferrari, um, you know, Arthur Cox, uh, Willie McFall, uh, Jack Charlton, who took over from... Arthur Cox, uh, but you know the the, the players, uh, Mick Shannon, of course, people like that. So it, it was a lot, but I I, I kind of get anywhere near the training ground now. You know, it's uh, it's not it's not on anymore, is it? Like like it used no, to be. I, well, I've, I've I've got to confess. I mean, in all my years cov covering covering Newcastle, I've never seen seen you at a at a pre-match press conference on, on a Friday or midweek. I tend to see you in the press room, don't I, at St James's Park on match yeah. days. Well, we've got a different format now. Uh, I mean, in the olden days, I used to go down to the training ground, talk about, and I used to interview people like Peter Beardsley and Waddler, and and, uh, and I used to say to Chris, right, Chris, uh, an important game tomorrow against whoever it might be. And then, uh, you, you know, an important three points, and he, he used to start a laugh, and I used to start, I said, right, come on, just set yourself down, and we'll start again. You know, so here he is now on, on Five Live, and, you know, and this, that, and the other, when, I, when he often says hello to me, because he remembers the days when he when he was uh, just a novice um, <laughs> down at the Benwell training ground. He used to get yeah, the he to, to the match. Tell me, has any player ever come up to you and said that they've been in hospital, and they've, they've listened to your commentaries? 
Uh, well, funny enough, they haven't. But I, I, di- I did have a young man once. Uh, I was walking down the Thumbless Street, and this young man with his mate, he, he, he went across. He says, you're the bloke off the radio, aren't you? I says, I am, Paul. And it was, it was Paul Gascoigne and uh, Stevenson were walking up the Thumbless Street. Yeah, yeah the, and, and I, I often, you know, when I see people like Dave McCreary and things like that, you know, they, they still come across and say, hello, Peter Beardsley. They do remember that I was sort of fairly in and around the, the training ground in those days. But uh, as you say, it's different now. And, uh, you know, when you look at some of the players we had in those days, people like Pat Hurd and and, and Megson and Tony Cunningham, yeah. you know, yeah. Ian, George Riley, you know. I mean, it was yes. just ridiculous, the, 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 the quality of the players we had then to compare to what we got now. Well, the, you know, the media, they've got a nice press room now. They, they, they get uh, decent food before the match and a cup of coffee and uh, cakes at half time. And, uh, you know, the seats are, and the desks are a little bit more furnished than they were all those years ago. But I'll tell you what won't change. That northeast weather, it's going to be very, very cold tomorrow night, Max, isn't it? <laughs> well, I was going to go out tonight uh, and I can't even get the car door. Don't so bother, don't bother. So, <laughs> so I've had to tell me, mate, I won't see you tonight. But uh, yeah, I mean, it's, it's good, isn't it, that the, the game will be on tomorrow because of the undersoil yes, heating. But, but, but also, I mean, it would have been an the... issue all those years ago. Yeah, but all the walkways, they'll all be, they'll have sand and, and, and salt and what have you put on tomorrow morning yes. to stop all the slipping around. But uh, I'm really looking forward to tomorrow's game as a, as I am to the Sunderland and Middlesbrough game. I mean, they've got some big, important games tomorrow, haven't they? They have. I mean, although you cover Newcastle, I know you are, I guess, like me, it's a little bit old-fashioned, but you, you're a supporter of the North East as a whole, aren't you? And you want to see all three do well. I mean, I'm sure... Your perfect scenario, like mine, would be seeing them one, two, three in the Premier League. Well, it would be. I, actually, fully enough, I used to work for Sunderland as well. I used to, I used to voice over some action when the old Roker Park. There used to be a guy up on the top of the uh, the clock stand with a camera, and I used to be sat in a cupboard on match days, uh, voicing over the action. And they made a video of the game and used to sell it in the club shop the next, you know, wow, week or so. I didn't know that, Max. I didn't know. Let, let's <laughs> let's let's look let's look at these games. Uh, let let's start with Sunderland's trip to Millwall. Now, you know, Sunderland have been playing some lovely football under Tony Mowbray for eighteen months there for over a year now, and. When they beat Southampton 5-0, I, I genuinely thought that they could push for even automatic promotion. It hasn't quite worked out that way. They haven't got an, a striker who can score goals. And even the the, the tick-attacker football, which Mowbray tries to preach, it, it's, it's not been particularly forthcoming in recent games. Millwall away after a miserable 2-1 home defeat against uh, Huddersfield. It looks ominous, doesn't it? It, it, it certainly does, and and you rightly say they've got two really good wingers, haven't they? Yes, who are providing yes. a lot of yes. a lot of ammunition. But they, if they kept Ross Stewart, perhaps I mean he would have been perfect for this scenario. But uh, unfortunately, he's no longer there, is he? That that's right. Although you know mo, uh, the club would claim that Sunderland's best form last season was when when he was injured, which you know was was the case. Sunderland looked like a side that got so used to playing without a striker that when a striker comes in, they don't know how to play with one. If that makes sense. Yeah, I, yeah, I think you're right, and I think the the big point will be if Jack Clark can uh, stay there. Uh, I mean, the January transfer thing isn't that far away, and if he can. Uh, I mean, he's such an important factor for Sunderland. If he can stay there and build 
But uh, who knows? I mean, if he goes, it's going to be back to square one again, isn't it? Maybe, maybe. Now, Max, I know you don't watch a lot of Middlesbrough, but I've, I suspect I've got no evidence for this, but I believe you would be a huge fan of Michael Carrick, the Middlesbrough head coach. Oh, well, I'll tell you a little tale. My, my son used to be, my son is exactly the same age as uh, Michael Carrick. Right. And my son played for Wolves End Boys for a few games and I used to go down and watch him and I was he was getting changed one day and I was looking in the gym and I saw this little lad kicking the ball against the wall heading it getting it under control and I said to this fella who, who's he? he said, oh he's called Michael Carrick I said he's surely going to play for Newcastle this kid isn't he and uh, of course you know he was allowed to drift away to West Ham or wherever it went to but you know even at my untrained eyes I was looking at this little lad he would be about seven yeah. or eight at the time and I just thought how good is this kid he just had everything going for him and it, it's not unlike in fact I think it's Dennis Stewart's birthday today Mm, that's right, um, yeah. I when I used well. when I used to play when I played sort of reasonable foot school football, he used to play against me, and I literally used right. to try and kick him, bring him down, and he was fantastic. And I used to think, oh, he'll go and play for Newcastle. And then he went to Sunderland, of course, and mm. the rest is history. Yeah, but maybe what should, a, what a great player he was! So there's two lads, you know. That uh, Alan yeah. Shearer is another one, you know. When you think of all the people who've left, but uh, certainly with Michael Carrick, I, I do think it was a a thing that we missed. And uh, even Steve Bruce, you know, he was another one that possibly should have played for Newcastle but didn't. But uh, yes. nevertheless, yeah. it's uh, I, I really hope he does well, Michael Carrick, this year. And did your lad have a decent uh, career in uh, local football? Well, he did. He had trials for Burnley and all this sort of thing. He's he's now a detective sergeant in the Northumbria uh, Police, and he's played right. for the, for the police teams. And he, the probably Kevin Kevin Carr. Kevin Carr. Well, uh, well police, yeah. he? He, yes, he, he did. Yeah, yeah. The, the problem my son had, he was a good cricketer and a good footballer. So there was always this, you know, thing he couldn't devote uh, enough time to one or the other. But Didn't nevertheless, stop he's. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> he had, he, he, yeah, he, he, he did. I mean, it was, you, you have to be fantastic to be a professional footballer. You, you've got to go that extra extra step, haven't you? Of course, of course. Let's have a prediction for uh, the Ellen El- clash, Leeds United v Middlesbrough. Well, Leeds had a good result the other day, didn't they? They, uh, yeah. they beat um, Swansea 3-1. Um, I mean, it's, gonna, it's a local derby, isn't it? It's, well, uh, basically. Is, is it? I mean, that, that's a, that's another tale. Some people would say yes, some would say no. <laughs> yeah, well, anyway, it's it's going to be a fantastic atmosphere in there, isn't it? Yes, I, I, I would like to think. Uh, I would think Middlesbrough will be happy with a draw if they uh, were honest. Yes, I, I'm, I'm sure that most Middlesbrough fans would settle for a draw. Sunderland, uh, I I suspect again that, uh, like me, you wouldn't be too hopeful of the chances of uh, getting anything out of Millwall. Not particularly because Millwall are, are, are a force, but because suddenly they're in a bit of a dip, aren't they? They certainly are. And uh, to go to Millwall, um, who didn't have a particularly good result the other night, I think they lost during the week. Um, I think that uh, Sunderland would probably lose this game. Um, I hope I'm wrong, but... Uh, it's, it's such a difficult place to go to. 
And yeah, if you look no. at Sunderland's next two games, it's West Tough. Brom and Leeds. West Brom and Leeds, that's right. Yeah, yeah. I mean, they, sh- so they, they need, really to, they need something out with this game, don't they? they? They do, because, they sh- you know, Plymouth and Huddersfield, I think most people would have thought they would get a minimum of four points from those two, but they ended up getting none. We'll finish where we started. Newcastle United against Manchester United. Uh, now, I've been guilty this season of... of uh, Looking at a lot of Newcastle wins and saying, well, yes, they won because the opposition weren't very good that day. But, that can't, you know, there's a trend there. That can't be a coincidence. It's because Newcastle, they don't necessarily have to look good, but they're very, very good at spoiling. And I'm not saying the spoilers, but, but uh, negating the strengths of the opposition. You know, even Manchester City in the Carabao Cup, Arsenal, Paris Saint-Germain the other night. You know, the, yeah. Newcastle, because they play such an intense pressing game, they do make the opposition look second best for long periods, don't they? You just wonder whether Newcastle are going to ramp the steam a little bit, you know, they kind of keep this Well, we, we wondered that. We wondered that against Chelsea. We wondered that against PSG. Yeah, but Chelsea were awful, weren't they? They were probably the worst side we've yeah. seen at St. James's for, for two or three seasons. They were really awful. I mean, it was it was embarrassing in the end. Um, but second nevertheless, half, I mean, yes, but at, second yeah. half, at half time, I, I, I thought Chelsea could win that. That, that may be well, my lack of football knowledge, I don't know. I think in the days of Steve Bruce, possibly, you know, but things are so different now, aren't they? You know, things are a little bit more organised and uh, we seem to know what we're doing. Mm. But uh, it's it's going to be... (laughs) Well, I I mean, every time I I doubt Newcastle, they they seem as though they've proved me wrong. And I I just hope tomorrow, uh, with a crowd behind us, and of course, I don't know whether the the PSG penalty decision is going to have any impact, whether it's going to make the the crowd even louder. And there's been a talk of this week about the crowd being a bit quiet. Um, I don't know whether that was necessarily... I I, I think the fact it's an eight o'clock kickoff. And I would um, yes. estimate that a large part of that crowd will have uh, started their Christmas pre-celebrations roughly five yes. or six hours earlier. I don't think there's any danger of a quiet crowd tomorrow night. No, I, I don't think. Alec, there's Manchester United, you know. Of course, we still owe them one from the, the cup final earlier in the year. So, uh, yeah, let's keep our fingers crossed that all our th- three northeast clubs can do well. Yeah, well, I look forward to seeing you tomorrow and uh, and we'll have you back on sometime and maybe we'll talk to you in, uh, when you're celebrating 50 years as a Radio Times well, commentator, Max. Well, I'll, I'll, <laughs> I'll, I would like to think so. I mean, it's, uh, as I say, I'm, I'm, I'm still reasonably fit for my age and I, and I, I mean, I can talk about Newcastle till the cows come home, basically. Um, but uh, yeah, that would be nice, wouldn't it? 50 years. You can talk football till the cows come home, not just Newcastle. Well, thank you very much, Max. It's been an absolute pleasure listening to you. Thank you very much. Cheers. Bye, lads. All the best. See you. All the best. See, I, t- I told you, I told you, we're not, we're not old, Dave. Yeah. No, 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 no. <laughs> Got to be careful what I'm going to say here. No, he's um, <laughs> more experienced, shall we say? He's he's a, he's a good man. Listen, the first half of the show with Kieran Brady, we 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 talked a lot about Sunderland. Max, obviously, working for Radio Townside Newcastle. Let's let's close the show just talking about Middlesbrough. I'd like to ask you where you stand in the striker debate now. Josh Coburn isn't going to score you twenty goals a season, and now there is the man assigned from Atlanta, uh, Latte Lat. Yep. He's not going to score you twenty, but they, they've they've got the 
they've got their good points. They've got their strengths. So they can both contribute to the side. Where, where, who would you have? Or do you agree with... Do you agree that with uh, Michael Carrick's mix and match policy? Well, well neither neither of them for me are the long term answer. Um, mm-hmm. I think uh, Josh is he's still learning, absolutely, uh, and I think this experience will, will do him the world of good. Uh, it was very close to being loaned out again, uh, and um, obviously the uh, the disappearance of uh, uh, of the firepower we were seeing last year meant. Michael Carrick looked at him in training probably one more time and thought, yeah, he could do a job for us. So Josh is still learning. He's, he's, he's still playing his... He's still learning his trade. Latir Lath, completely different striker. He's not got the physical presence, though he's very strong. He's got very strong body uh, body strength, upper body strength. Uh, he's more of an explosive, fast player uh, who who likes to run at defences and use pace. So two two completely different strikers. I don't think either of them, in their own right... Or a Tuberac Pom, uh, or even an Archer, or somebody of that ilk. So, uh, I wouldn't be surprised if Carrick's not looking for a striker when it comes to transfer windows. Uh, in in for for somebody who's more of a permanent solution. Yes. Before we go on to your uh, the predictions for the weekend, mm-hmm. uh, I must tell you this: I was talking to a Newcastle fan and I asked him, uh, "What do you think about having an eight o'clock kickoff on a Saturday night?" <laughs> and do you know what he said? Go on. He said, well, better than a Friday night, he said, because on a Friday night, I like to start my weekend listening to the three legends, le- listening to you Brilliant. on the black and white and red all over show, then going off to the pub. So that was nice, wasn't it? So when you bump into him next time, tell him about the breakfast show as well, because that's crazy. I'll ask him to buy me a pipe <laughs> with the tenner I gave him. <laughs> yeah, good man, good man. Um, right, anyway, so so this weekend, listen, yeah. I, I've, I've already said I suspect we'll have three home wins yeah as i said i i was looking back and with with newcastle i felt that a lot of the wins have been due to the fact that the the opposition's been appalling i remember i first said that sheffield united and i was right then but you know but newcastle because they play this such this intensive they close down space so Mm. quickly they do make the opponents look bad now manchester united certainly have the players who could produce a shock result at St James's Park? We only have to look at Ganacho's one strike last week, and uh, you know their new whiz kid, uh, whose name temporarily escapes me, who will be up against Mali. Uh, you know he had a tremendous game last week at Everton, but you know Newcastle will have done the homework, and what they ensure is that the Ganachos won't have the space mm. to work the magic. That you know they will won't allow. That Bruno Fernandez to let fly from thirty yards, and this this is how they play, and this is how they succeed. Yeah, it is. Um, I do have to question whether they can keep it up, keep up the high press, uh, the closing down of space, the the heavy workload that they give themselves, due to the fact that they have so many injuries. So that 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 heavy workload is being asked more and more of fewer and fewer players. I've got to, I've, you know, I've got to flag that one up, but. I think they're going to come out the PSG game with a point to prove. I think they'll feel badly done to in Paris with what happened over the VAR incident, the penalty, and I think they'll carry that into the game and I think that's going to help them. I do fancy them to beat Manchester United. I know United have won the last three, but they've not won the last three convincingly and Man United right. haven't won the last three against really strong teams. Now, they're coming coming up against a Newcastle team that is a strong Premier League team as much as that hurts me to say as a smoggy but 
that's what they're going to be facing. And I just think United, Man- Manchester United will not be able to cope with Newcastle at the weekend. Now, before we go, I would just urge readers, uh, listeners, to buy a paper tomorrow. I'm primarily a print journalist. Eddie Howe's press conference today was fascinating. He's talking about this them and us mentality. No one likes us. We don't care. Newcastle, it's siege warfare for them. They, the brickbats, the abuse, the, the, the barbed comments... Eddie Howe saying, bring it on. It just makes us stronger. Some tremendous quotes. And, uh, you know, get yourself a paper tomorrow and uh, warm up for the match that way. Wonderful. We're done, Ian. That's it for another weekend. Look forward to next week. Get your Christmas presents sorted, Dave. And we'll sort, we'll sort the Christmas due out as well. No problem. Absolutely. Nice one. Cheers, Ian. Thank you. Bye-bye. All the best, folks. The Reds, the tune and the